This is Unfiltered, episode 303 for April 15th, 2020. Stimulus checks are rolling in for millions of Americans today. About 80 million people expected to receive their payments today directly into their bank account. The IRS launching a website that will allow you to track the status of your check in case you don't have it. Well, if, uh, if the IRS does not have your bank account information, they will send you a check in the mail. Those paper checks will have the president's name written on them, something that has never been done before. friends and welcome into your corona cracking cast this is episode 303 of that show that's paying attention to every single possible news outlet so you don't have to today is a catch us up on everything going on episode there's a lot that's happened just in the last couple of days since episode 302 specifically you heard the intro clip but there's also some other major points that i want to touch on in both our covid19 section the economy, and the election. We have a full three-criteria update for you today. <laughs> so that's why I'm, That's why we're going to do it. Um, I hope going into it, we all have a nice weekend. We'll see. I'll probably do another update at the beginning of next week. So whatever happens between then and now, we'll have an update for you. But what a heck of a couple of days. And of course, the number one thing we're all worried about now is hackers. Wait, what? So these are scary times, but unfortunately, there's more to worry about than just a global pandemic. Oh, good. Could you could you freak me out a little more? Because I feel like my ambient anxiety is uh, just completely debilitating enough. So if we could maybe put some sort of extra existential crisis on top of there, then I could probably well, I could probably go get medicated at that point. New warning from the FBI about coronavirus scams. Scams related to the coronavirus. Stealing sensitive personal information. It could infect your computer. Oh! Anytime there's a global event, hackers like to weaponize it. So whether it's the Olympics or an election or a global pandemic, hackers are trying to leverage whatever the situation is against users. Says the media that is leveraging the very situation right now. I have an old email address with a pretty good spam filter, and it's just inundated with spam mail, claiming to be everything from the World Health Organization to COVID-19 vaccines. Now, I'm not going to take the bait, but believe it or not, a lot of people will. Can we have a, a new set of rules? Um, phishing attempts and spam don't qualify anyone as elite hackers. In fact, let's modify that rule even further. How about you can't call it hacking? You can't say it's a nation-state attack. You know, it reminds me of both the North Korea, the North Korean attack after um, the interview or whatever it was that that uh, Seth Rogen movie, where supposedly this massive exploit and dump of the Sony network was done over an email link, and of course John Podesta supposedly getting fished by the Russians, and we just consider somehow now spam as some attack vector that also gets counted in malware stats as malware. It's just really it's remarkable. Um, so watch out for hackers, kids. Apparently, they're trying to leverage the situation. Not politicians in the media, though. Or Trump, who's trying to shift the blame very bigly to the WHO. 
Where President Trump does find fault in handling the pandemic is the World Health Organization, and he has threatened to cut U.S. funding because of it. The criticism is connected to China's early reporting on the disease and the WHO's resistance to challenge it. Nick Robertson has our report. It's going to be a virus that stalks the human race for quite a long time to come. When the World Health Organization, the WHO, speaks, we listen, right? Question is, should we? They seem to be very China-centric. President Trump thinks not, is considering defunding them. Give a majority of the money that they get. January 22nd, Wuhan, one day from any form of lockdown. China is in crisis mode. The WHO praises China. Yet, as we now know, for the previous two months, China has been silencing its doctors, stonewalling its people and lying by omission about the disease. In January, at least, the WHO seems unwilling to question China's truthfulness, raising concerns it could have done more to stop the pandemic before it got going. So this is the general case. Um, that was from CNN. Now, today, President Trump, actually, by the time you're hearing this, is almost two days ago, has announced that he's halting funding to the World Horth, Horth, <laughs> the World Horror Organization, no, <laughs> the World Health Organization. I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Everybody knows what's going on there. Just by the way. <laughs> the coronavirus. Everybody knows what's going on there. American taxpayers provide between $400 million and $500 million per year to the WHO. In contrast, China contributes roughly $40 million a year and even less. As the organization's leading sponsor, the United States has a duty to insist on full accountability, one of the most dangerous and costly decisions from the WHO was its disastrous decision to oppose travel restrictions from China and other nations. They were very much opposed to what we did. Fortunately, I was not convinced and suspended travel from China, saving untold numbers of lives. Thousands and thousands of people would have died. So I, I have in the show notes a link to how the WHO is funded. It is true that the U.S. seems to be the primary funder. The Bill, and Gate, Bill Gates and Melinda Gates um, charity is the second funder, and then it's countries and whatnot after that. Link in there. Now, you got to understand these are done in sort of yearly batches, these, these payments, I, I believe. So I'm not actually clear if Trump's suspending this right now while it is under quote-unquote review actually means they will get any less money. I'd be curious if anybody has information on that or if they've seen coverage. At this time, it's that part is actually unclear. It could be something that wouldn't kick in until later in this year anyways, and by then the review will be over. But it sure makes for a lot of attention, and it gets people riled up, and it moves the blame over to the WHO. Um, I think we saw this coming. I don't... Much like I don't think it's time for Adam Schiff to be assembling his crew of investigators, I don't think it is time for Trump to be shaming the WHO at uh, every daily press briefing. Just as it seems anti-productive and it seems like things that could be handled behind the scenes after this. But 
I think it's about more than that. And I suspect you think that too. So this week, <laughs> wow. You know, as an observer of the human race, I find the behavior you all are participating in now to be really fascinating. Something that's going in uh, the books. And that is we now have polarized opinions on how long we need to socially distance, how long we need to have things locked down. And everybody's on every side, from, from protests to social shaming on each side. And researchers, not all of them, but some, which you'll hear from in this clip, say that we may have to endure social distancing until 2022. With all the talk tonight about lifting social distancing guidelines state by state, there's an eye-opening new study from a team of researchers at Harvard School of Public Health. Oh my gosh, it predicts under certain I scenarios the potential need for those measures and school closures to continue until 2022. In our next segment, we'll be joined by someone working to brighten that picture considerably. She leads the vaccine effort at the National Institutes of Health. But first, uh, Yonatan Grad, Assistant Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at Harvard University School of Public Health. Thanks so much for being with us, Professor Grad. Your team used models of what we now know uh, about COVID-19, <clears throat> along with other viruses, to create possible scenarios of the pandemic, one which conclude a potential need for social distancing until 2022. Can you explain how you found that? Uh, absolutely. So um, there are two ways in which the pandemic <laughs> ends. Uh, one, uh, we eliminate the virus. I think with global spread of the virus, that one is, is quite unlikely. In the second, uh, pandemic ends because there's sufficient immunity in the population. So with that as a backdrop, we were interested in asking about the impact of social distancing uh, and what happens when we stop a one-time effort. So uh, we are doing social distancing with the idea of flattening the curve and trying to prevent overwhelming our healthcare infrastructure. Uh, <clears throat> so um, if we're successful in doing that, we also keep a lot of people susceptible to the infection uh, so that if we stop social distancing after four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, or, or what have you, there will still be a pool of people who are susceptible. And we might see, again, a rise in infection, which might prompt us to reinitiate social distancing. Mm -hmm. So keeping in mind that our goal is getting up to population level immunity in the absence of a vaccine or potentially other types of interventions, what we might uh, see is this kind of on-off uh, intermittent distancing and to get up to population immunity, again, that end point uh, would take until 2022. Let's pause here. So my first concern with this is these models that have predicted doom and gloom have been flawed, clearly flawed. In fact, there was a story that was very quietly released that the Trump administration has changed their source from the Bill and Gates, from the Bill and Gates. <laughs> from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> uh, can you tell us, I'm recording this, by the way, late Wednesday night in Lady Jupes when everyone's gone to bed. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can tell. Uh, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was the primary source of model data for the White House for uh, Dr. Uh, Bur I was going to call her by her actual name, Burks, for Dr. Bricks, as I like to call her and for Fauci, and for Trump, and obviously now the WHO. 
That seems to have changed. And I have some links in the show notes for over the last couple of episodes. They're now do- using different models because the models that they were using previously were predicting as, as high as 240,000 deaths. And now the new models are predicting 60,000. These models have been really bad. And so when researchers come out with these doom and gloom predictions that are based on models, it's, it's hard to take them seriously. I think they're going to drain the public trust of scientific models, which I think is unfortunate because models can be flawed. They're as flawed as what goes into them, but the technology will exist to get them right over time, especially as you apply more and more learned lessons. So it's like you have to take every situation, in this case, every model on its own merits. I don't know if I particularly am buying this. And then the second thing about this is both Anderson Cooper and his guest kept mentioning, well, unless we have vaccines. And I wonder if this is to create a conversation dynamic in the public that it's social distance until 2022 or take your medicine. And I wonder if maybe that's part of why they're framing it like this as well. The the other thing that I, I'm 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 really having trouble believing that social distancing has brought us as close to this gap as much as they're claiming, because they're I, for example, um, I went back and I grabbed this clip. I was listening to this on the way home from the studio while I was sitting in traffic in Washington. And if you remember, this was one of the original pandemic hotspots. And they're claiming that our staying at home has prevented Seattle from ever developing a curve. Well, there is absolutely have been less people on the roads. That that is that has diminished over the last week. And to the point of where I was ironically hearing this clip that I'm about to play for you the first time while I'm sitting in traffic and they're talking about how well Seattle staying at home. We have some states like California and Washington State, Oregon, that never really had a peak because of so much work that their populations did to decrease and keep the new cases down. And that could be. Maybe that is how it worked. Um, And maybe now that we're out and about again, we're going to see it start popping back up. I think also what was really kind of important to understand about Washington's early numbers, and I wouldn't be surprised if early numbers in a lot of places... It was essentially all one retirement community initially. Our big outbreak with all the deaths was one retirement community in Kirkland, Washington. So I wonder if that too hasn't affected our curve because after it ran its course in there, we essentially did start the lockdown process. What does that mean? Where does that leave us? Because I'm pulling in all the data points and I see people now are protesting about lockdowns. Other people are saying they need to last until 2022. And I feel like I need more input. I need more information. So I've been I've been keeping tabs on how it's playing in other places in the world. Well, much of Europe is still on lockdown. Sweden has done the opposite. The streets are bustling, restaurants are open, trains, buses still running. Critics of Sweden's decision to buck the status quo might just backfire, as CNN's Phil Black explains. In these strange times, this is a strange sight. People just hanging out in bars and cafes, enjoying the sunny Easter weekend with friends and family. The coronavirus hasn't skipped Sweden They're just dealing with it very differently. No forced closures, no lockdown. Some, including President Trump, think the country is betting everything on that controversial theory 
herd immunity, deliberately allowing the disease to move through the population so younger people with antibodies surround and protect the elderly and more vulnerable. Sweden did that. The herd, they call it the herd. Uh, Sweden suffering very, very badly. Absolutely not true, says the Swedish government. I, I wonder how this story would have gone had Trump said the opposite. If Trump had come out there and said, Sweden's doing fantastic, he's, they're doing great. I wonder if this story would have been framed a little differently. Because having a trained ear listening to the way the media presents information, specifically this is CNN International here, um, you can kind of hear they, they're in a rock and a hard place. They want to make it sound like Trump's wrong about something. But at the same time, they don't want to claim that taking no precautions has been great. So they, they kind of are working the story in a strange way. But I find this whole thing to be fascinating. I don't think you can make an apples to apples comparison of the United States and Sweden. It's a different population. I, I just don't think it, it's it just it isn't the same. But I think it is a fascinating data point. Badly. Absolutely not true, says the Swedish government. Our goal is the same as in most other countries. We want to save lives. We want to, to hinder uh, the spreading of the virus. Swedish health officials say their approach is designed to slow the virus where it spreads most, and they don't think that's in bars and restaurants. Not convinced that lockdowns and these kind of things work very well. Anders Tegnell, Sweden's state epidemiologist, says their strategy's focus is asking everyone to avoid travel, work from home where possible, and isolate if you feel unwell. And he says it's worked, flattening the curb, keeping critical cases within the capacity of the health system. I think one of the strong reasons for why we have been doing what we're doing in Sweden is that we feel that this is very sustainable. Uh, we can keep on doing this for, for long, for months then, without any real harm to society. That's just it. Right there, they they don't have to now worry about the big reboot. How do they get back to work, which we're going to get to in a second. I want to just cover a little more of this uh, daily briefing today that I was grabbing clips from, because there was a moment in here that uh, really surprised me. And uh, he used his daily briefing today to announce how pissed he is over delays in his appointments and the actions he tends to take from it. Again, every single judge, every nominee we have goes through maximum or at least they go through a long process. So it takes days and days and there's no time left. And it's just a concerted effort to make life difficult. An example is Michael Pack. He's my nominee for the CEO of the Broadcasting Broadcasting Board of Governors, and he's been stuck in committee for two years, preventing us from managing the Voice of America. Very important. And if you heard what's coming out of the Voice of America, it's disgusting. Voice of America is the United States version of RT. Of we have our own propaganda arm, and it's Voice of America. We we give other like Al Jazeera a hard time. We give RT a hard time, but we have Voice of America been around for a long time Very important and if you heard what's coming out of the voice of america it's disgusting what well, things they say are disgusting toward our country and michael pack would get in he'd do a great job but he's been waiting now for two years can't get him approved the senate has left washington until at least may 4th the constitution provides a mechanism for the president to fill positions in such circumstances, the recess appointment, it's called. The Senate's practice of 
gaveling into so-called pro forma sessions where no one is even there has prevented me from using the constitutional authority that we're giving, that we're given under the recess provisions. The Senate should either fulfill its duty and vote on my nominees, or it should formally adjourn so that I can make recess appointments. We have a tremendous number of people that have to come into government, and now more so than ever before because of the virus and the problem. Uh, we have to do it, and we have to do whatever we have to do. They've made it very, very difficult to run government. I don't think any administration has done anywhere near what we've done in three and a half years. But every block, every week, they put up roadblocks. Whether it's Russia, 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 or whether it's impeachment hoax, or whatever it may be, it's always roadblocks and a waste of time. If the House will not agree to that adjournment, I will exercise my constitutional authority to adjourn both chambers of Congress. The current practice of leaving town while conducting phony pro forma sessions is a dereliction of duty that the American people cannot afford during this crisis. It is a scam what they do. It's a scam, and everybody knows it. And it's been that way for a long time. And perhaps it's never done before. It's never been done before. Nobody's even sure if it has, but we're going to do it. We need these people here. We need people for this crisis. And we don't want to play any more political games. I've been waiting for two and a half years, three years for some of these people. And they're great people. They left law firms. They left jobs. They gave up everything to do it, and they've been waiting for three years, two and a half years, two years, one year to get approved. It's ridiculous. And everyone knows they're going to be approved. <laughs> everyone knows it. Um, so that's how his press briefing started today. Yeah. Mm. It was, uh, we'll see where that goes. I suspect this is going to be a fun one where the press will say, he thinks he's a king again. They go at him for not using the War Powers Act more. And then they go at him for not doing more federally earlier. But then when he does exercise the constitutional powers, they'll go after him for behaving like a king and a dictator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I almost wonder if that's why he announced it now, because he's getting that very thing right now. Uh, I, I'm so sick of that. I'm so sick of that. And I would imagine it is very frustrating for a president that gets in there who hasn't been able to govern properly because of it. Although, let's be honest, he probably would have fired half of them. <laughs> hey oh, hey oh, hey oh. I do whine because I want to win. Now, of course, the media has gone all in on heaping praise on South Korea. South Korea is the model. And I called it, I did call it on this show that they would cite South Korea as the solution to all our problems. That's continued right along. Meanwhile, this has also been at the forefront globally, uh, the whole issue of what South Korea has done. South Korea has done better than most of the other countries around the world in handling the pandemic. Uh, they are now sending 600,000 more COVID-19 test kits to the U.S. today. South Korea's widespread testing has allowed it to become the first country to hold a nationwide election during the pandemic a possible blueprint for the U.S. in November. This is why it's gotten so much tension this week, because they just held their election. So they have a government official on, 
And uh, she says, oh, yes, it's been the contact. Or he says it's been the contact tracing. You just said it there, Andrea. I mean, one of the things they did was they did widespread testing. So they've tested two to three more people per capita in South Korea than they have here in the United States. And they, as you mentioned in your piece, they have a surplus of masks and test kits that they're now exporting abroad because they've met all the domestic demand. That's the ultimate flex, isn't it? Yeah, we're doing so good. We're sending everybody else supplies. <laughs> but uh, how do you open it back up, right? How how do you get them? How do you like, well, they say it's tracing. They say it's contact tracing. That's what's put us over. They, we did the contact tracing and then we knew people could go back to work. We knew people were safe to go back and shop. It's the contact tracing. That's how that interview goes. And that's how they've been positioning it all week. Now, you are supposed to be getting your money right about now, either electronically or with a keepsake check signed by President Trump. Stimulus checks are rolling in for millions of Americans today. About 80 million people expected to receive their payments today directly into their bank account. The IRS launching a website that will allow you to track the status of your check in case you don't have it. Well, if, uh, if the IRS does not have your bank account information, they will send you a check in the mail. Those paper checks will have the president's name written on them, something that has never been done before. And there are some claims that printing of the name on the checks could actually slow down the del delivery by several days. The Treasury Department disputes that claim. They say there will be no delay and that the first checks will go out as early as next week. It's actually signed by Steve Mnuchin, I think. But then Trump's name is like in the memo section. <laughs> he, and he has a whole defense for it that's pretty weak. Like, um, not buying this defense. Mr. President, why did you have your name added to these coronavirus relief checks? Well, I don't know too much about it, but I understand my name is there. Uh, I don't know where they're going, how they're going. I do understand it's not delaying anything. So he doesn't know much about it, but he understands it's not delaying anything. You think that just accidentally happened? Somebody accidentally put Trump's name on there? I don't understand much about it. I guess we have a tell now. When, when he says, I don't understand much about it, it means he asked for it. I mean, really. You don't. I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. But I understand my name is there. Uh, I don't know where they're going, how they're going. I do understand it's not delaying anything, and I'm satisfied with that. I don't. I don't imagine it's a big deal. I'm sure people will be very happy to get a big, fat, beautiful check, and my name is on it. Yeah, go ahead, please. <laughs> and that's it. He seems he keeps shouting questions, but Trump ignores it. President, go ahead, please. Please, please. Go ahead. And yeah, that's it. That's it. That's all we get. That's all you get. Of course, uh, Nancy has feels about that. What's your take on President Trump's name appearing on these uh, stimulus checks? Shameful. Just as, you know, in other words, people are really desperate to get a check. Let me put it in perspective. And then she just, for the next one minute and 30 seconds, rambles and never actually makes a point. I'll jump ahead 30 seconds. Do not have the equipment that they need. Now she's talking about hospitals, nothing to do with Trump's signature. I'll jump ahead a little bit further. Uh, to be used for, to enrich shareholders, uh, buybacks. To not talk about buybacks, of course. And then she wraps up the question with a nice, solid, non sequitur. Our economy is through testing, testing, testing. And that's her answer to Trump's name on the check. She's a strong leader, powerful leader. When she speaks, I really listen, you know, it's really moving, really, really appreciate the Democrats strong response to this unprecedented move. 
I have actually really enjoyed the little uh, fight back and forth between Trump and the governors. What a shit show that's been. With California announcing a record 71 deaths in one day, the governor today said it will take time to ease the stay-at-home restrictions. This phase is one where science, where public health, not politics, uh, must be the guide. Governor Newsom announcing six steps in what could be a blueprint for the nation, including community testing and isolating those who are positive or exposed, preventing infection in those who are at risk, preparing hospitals to handle a surge of patients therapeutic drugs to meet demand, and social distancing at schools and businesses. You may be having dinner uh, with a waiter wearing gloves, maybe a face mask, uh, dinner where your temperature is checked before you walk in. Uh, how do you feel about that one? Let me know in the Discord, unfilter.show slash Discord. Would you be willing to have your temperature taken at a restaurant and really think about it? Because my wife, who is the sweetest, nicest person in the entire world, she had a super strong reaction one time because a restaurant we went to that serves alcohol kicked us both out because she did not have her ID. Now, trust me, she's definitely of age to drink. Um, and it's kind of obvious. And I was, and I had my ID, and she wasn't drinking. And she was so incensed that they would kick us out after we gotten settled and all of that. Uh, because she didn't have her ID. Imagine that scenario. You show up to date night, finally get out, you got a babysitter, you get to the restaurant, and then maybe you're just feeling a little warm. Who knows what it is? I mean, I've checked my temperatures at random times. Sometimes it's low, sometimes it's high. How would that make you feel if they turned you around? Or is it the right thing to do? Is it to protect the, everyone else, protect the restaurant? That way they don't have to shut down, et cetera, et cetera. Because if they end up finding out that one or two people were positive, they would theoretically might have to shut down for a couple of days while they do a deep clean. They definitely can't afford to do that now. So what is the right answer here? Mask, uh, dinner where your temperature is checked before you walk in to the establishment. Newsom among the governors asserting their own independence after President Trump said he alone had total authority. The president of the United States has the authority to do what the president has the authority to do, which is very powerful. Kind of sounds like he doesn't know. <laughs> kind of sounds like he doesn't know what the answer is to that. Authority to do what the president has the authority to do, which sounds like something very vague. The United States has the authority to do what the president has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The president of the United States calls the shots. The president insisting he, not the governors, will decide when to reopen states. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Unless it's Obama, right, Trump? <laughs> president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Those comments touching off dissent. His proclamation is that he would be king. That's what a king is. A king has total authority. And disagreement, including from some Republicans. Governors made decisions to uh, take various actions in their states based on what they thought was uh, right for their state. That's the governor of Maryland. Um, I kind of see two things going on here, like I always do. Jeez, it's always two things with me, guys. <laughs> Sorry. I try to make it one thing more often. But I think it is Trump is concerned that the governors will drag their feet, especially the Democrat governors who would maybe not mind him seeing losing an election. I'm not saying that's true or not. I'm saying I think he's concerned about that. And number two, 
I think it's also a bit of a power play by the governors. I think uh, Governor Cuomo, Cuman, Cuomo. I think he's. Uh, I think he's benefited. I don't think we were ever talking about him before, were you? Unless you're in New York, you never knew the guy's name. Maybe you knew about Chris Cuomo from. I mean, Cuman from CNN, but you just didn't. You didn't see leadership from there. And I think the governors have recognized that opportunity. Now Governor Newsom's is taking that opportunity. But at the same time, <laughs> seeing both sides of this, the governors are both both more better equipped, in this case, both in New York and in California, and even in my own, even though I have some doubts, they're better equipped. They know the situation on the ground better. They have the information. They are there. They know the regional situation. They probably should be the ones that have this authority, and constitutionally they do. I can also see why a coordinated response, federally, much like they were calling for during the shutdown, if you recall. Ironically, this whole situation is flipped now. We were all supposedly complaining that there wasn't a federal coordinated shutdown and stay-at-home order that was federally mandated across all of the states so there would be uniformity. But when it comes to rebooting the economy, we want to let the governors do it. We don't want a federal response. We don't want it coordinated. Do you see how that's a bit of a flip? And this has been like this for every situation. And it's, it's generally set by whatever side Trump's on, we got to go on the other side. It's so unproductive. To uh, take various actions in their states based on what they thought was uh, right for their state. Several regional state governors quickly announced they would coordinate with each other. In the Northeast, New York and six other states say the goal is to ease social isolation without triggering renewed spread. In the West, Washington, Oregon and California have announced their own council. Even conservative constitutional law scholars say the president is simply wrong. I have no idea what he is talking about. Um, no clue. The Constitution does not give the president the power to instruct states what to do. And Congress has not given the president the power to instruct states what to do. In fact, that's the very defense Trump had been using about the response, the timeline of the response, the supplies, and the federal mandated stay-at-home orders. Were all, all the reasons why the, these things were either not done on time or not done right or maybe not done completely or not done at all, was because we don't want to take the power away from the governors. Now we want to take the power away from the governors. And now it's a good thing. Now it's a bad thing. Now it's a good thing. Now it's a bad thing. It's amazing we're going to get through this thing at all. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and if we don't figure something out pretty soon, the economy is going to be so busted from this uh, that maybe it won't matter. The whole situation where Trump was going to call up Saudi Arabia and work out an oil deal... That is just completely falling apart. And the reality is, is that now that oil has dropped to $20, there is debate if U.S. oil companies will even survive. The question, if you can believe this, has become, will we even have survivors? There are definitely going to be survivors, but there are also going to be bankruptcies. And quite frankly... There should be. I hate to say that. It doesn't give me any. It doesn't give me any joy to say that. But you know, if you believe in capitalism and corporate Darwinism, there should be. And again, I'll say this: uh, we are in. We, when I say we, the United States, we're dancing a very dangerous dance. In when the price is thirty dollars higher, oil is much too high. We got to get it lower. And then when it goes low, we need to get it higher. I mean, 
One has to wonder what's happening behind the scenes with those conversations. That coupled with the fact that for all the bloviating, uh, crude's now $20. I mean, it's sort of scary if you really look out there. And I do think with all my heart that the Russians and the Saudis, who people will say were fighting with each other, were not fighting with each other at all. I think it's a concerted effort to undermine our energy industry. And quite frankly, and unfortunately, they're being very successful. Nailing it right here. It was Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Russia working together all along to collapse the U.S. oil economy and come in and clean up. And now they're now oil companies in the U.S. are selling at a fire sale. If you'll excuse the expression, they can snatch them up for pennies on the value now. And Saudi Arabia owns them out right now. Not fighting with each other at all. I think it's a concerted effort to undermine our energy industry. And quite frankly, and unfortunately, they're being very successful at it. Better uh, better get them tariffs going. Oh, wait, that's horrible, too. There is other things afoot. There are politicians, there are media companies, and there are nations that are taking advantage of our broken-ass economy. Whatever happens, the next president is going to have a hell of a job picking up the pieces. So let's shift to the election now. From the economy to the election, here's a few things that have developed in the last few days I think you should know about. Number one, Biden's sexual allegation claims have begun to bubble up to the mainstream media. Back in Washington, D.C., Biden is the subject of a new police report summarized like this. Subject 1 disclosed that she was the victim of a sexual assault which was committed by Subject 2 in 1993. Biden's accuser is a former Senate staffer named Tara Reid, who detailed her account on a podcast last month. He went down my skirt, but then up inside it, and he uh, penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And um, I, uh, he was kissing me at the same time and he said, come on, man. I heard you liked me. Biden's campaign shares a statement from his longtime executive assistant. I have absolutely no knowledge or memory of Miss Reed's accounting of events, which would have left a searing impression on me as a woman professional and as a manager. His deputy campaign manager tells us women have a right to tell their story and reporters have an obligation to rigorously vet those claims. We encourage them to do so because these accusations are false. Believe every woman except for this one is quite literally their response. When you read their statement in full, it's you should believe every woman and investigate everything. However, don't believe this one. Totally not fault. Totally not. I would have remembered. Totally not true. I would have remembered that. I'm a female. So if uh, he had gone off and secretly uh, finger banged some uh, staffer um, and I had then somehow found out about that, definitely would have remembered it. That's the statement. That's the statement from the campaign. However, I really don't know if this is going to go anywhere. I really don't. It's interesting that she filed a police report, though. So I'll keep an eye out. I don't think it's going anywhere. None of this stuck to Joe this week. It was a good week for Joe. He got a few important endorsements that we were kind of waiting where the hell they were. Hi, everybody. Let me start by saying the obvious. These aren't normal times. As we all manage our way through a pandemic unlike anything we've seen in a century, Michelle and I hope that you and your families are safe and well. But if there's one thing we've learned as a country from moments of great crisis, it's that the spirit of looking out for one another 
can't be restricted to our homes or our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our houses of worship. It also has to be reflected in our national government. Uh oh. The kind of leadership that's guided by knowledge and experience, honesty and humility, empathy and grace. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. No, 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 no. Hey. He believes it so strongly, he has to slowly read it from a cue card. Also, a few others came out this week to endorse Biden. Seems like a big week. Obviously, last week it was Sanders. Your good buddy, Jallery Verrett, Jallery, oh my God, Valerie Jarrett, geez, I really need to go to bed. Valerie Jarrett um, came out to endorse him. Several others came out to endorse Biden this week. Like everybody's kind of rolling it out this week, including your good buddy, Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is endorsing Joe Biden for president. In a video message, the Massachusetts senator became the final major 2020 Democratic presidential candidate to throw her support behind the former vice president. Joe Biden has spent nearly his entire life in public service. He knows that a government run with integrity, competence, and heart will save lives and save livelihoods. And we can't afford to let Donald Trump continue to endanger the lives and livelihoods of every American. And that's why I'm proud to endorse Joe Biden as President of the United States. By CBSN, political reporter Caitlin Huey Burns. So, Caitlin, tell me, what do you think this means for Joe Biden to have her endorsement? Hi, Rita. Well, it is endorsement week for the Biden campaign. Earlier this week, you saw Bernie Sanders throw his weight behind Joe Biden in a live stream yesterday. I already said all that. We don't need to hear that. But Elizabeth Warren, they even produced a little clip. I mean, it's pretty high production values for that thing. It's quite the full-throated endorsement, as they say. So it's full speed ahead for Joe. I I don't really have much to say more than that. Um, I think I've made my position on it pretty clear. I don't like either one of these. I think it's incredible that in a nation of over 300 million for the second election in a row, it it had always been getting bad. It was never like we had great choices. But for the second election now in a row, we have two horrendous choices, in my opinion. And... um, wouldn't want to vote for either one of them. And I I just can't believe it. I just I didn't want to vote for Trump or Hillary, and now I don't want to vote for Biden or Trump. I don't I don't think either one of them are particularly going to be great at the job. Although there is one thing about Trump, right? Is he gets the average man, I think, probably a little bit better than Joe. Maybe. Maybe. At least a certain type of average man. You know, the man who kind of likes himself some sports. We want to have our sports leagues open. You want to watch sports. It's important. We miss sports. We miss sports. (laughs) Actually, kind of been nice for me. Not a big sports guy. Not a big traffic guy. Not a big sports guy. I am a big news guy. So I've been following the news. That's what I've seen so far that I thought would be good to keep you apprised on. Unfilter releases on an as-needed basis at unfilter.show slash subscribe. If you missed the discussion wrap-up episode with Chase and myself on Monday, go check out unfilter.show slash 302. Links for a lot of the informed commentary in this episode will be at unfilter.show slash 303. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
you know, as this develops and we see all these different polarized opinions about how to open the economy, about if we should stay at home, your Unfiltered show will continue to tread right down the middle, take a centrist, balanced approach, a rational approach to these stories. And that way, hopefully, you get to hear a little bit of all of the sides. There's no filter here. We have unfiltered. Paying attention to all that news so you don't have to. Join us on the community, in the community, at the community. I'll be checking in there throughout the weekend from my zombie apocalypse, a mobile tiny home, unfiltered.show slash discord. It's the social platform of choice for me right now. I've been really enjoying it. Thank you, everybody, for engaging in the conversation there. And unfilter.show slash contact is now plumbed to the new email that is hosted on ProtonMail. So if you want to get a longer form note into the show, unfilter.show slash contact is the place to do it. And I'll mention when we live stream, we live stream on Twitch at twitch.tv slash unfiltered. I don't often stream, but when I do stream, it's twitch.tv slash unfiltered. You can follow us over there and then get alerts when we're live. Thanks for tuning this episode. See you back here soon.